0: The biographical part of Genesis, if we might call it that, the latter part, chapter 12 through to chapter 50, that deals with the lives of the patriarchs, is most interesting and it's most instructive for us, not just in terms of its history, and it is real history, but because in the lives of men and women in Scripture, there are lessons for us to learn for our lives. Many are those lessons from what the Holy Ghost records concerning the lives of the patriarchs. And as we've been emphasizing in these messages on the Old Testament, especially on the Pentateuch, it's important for us to note what the New Testament says regarding the need to consider the content of the Old Testament. I think there's a mindset in many preachers indeed, as well as Christians, that the New Testament is for us now as Christians and the Old Testament is kind of stuff that happened in a bygone age that doesn't have much relevance to us. Now, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that's largely true. And if you examine the sermons of some who claim to be ministers of the Gospel, you'll find that the Old Testament content is quite short of supply. That's a real tragedy. Because as we look at the New Testament, we discover, for example, in Romans 15 and verse number 4, that that which has been written in the past, that which was written of old time, and that's how it's described in verse 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime, Were written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So we're meant to learn from the things that were written aforetime. That's referring to the Old Testament. When you go over then to Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, he says there, concerning all the history that he has just rehearsed, Now all these things happened unto them for end samples. We would say types or examples. And they are written for our admonition. They are meant to warn us. They are meant to teach us. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We are meant to learn from the Old Testament history. The things that happened in Israel. Lessons that will benefit us in our lives. Now of all the life stories of the Old Testament, none are perhaps more interesting than those of the men that we call the patriarchs. The fathers of the book of Genesis, with whom God established his covenant. God told Moses in Exodus 3 verse 6, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now that's something you will read a number of times in the Scripture. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, or if you like, the God of the patriarchs. If you turn to Matthew chapter 22, and to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 22, He said in verse 31 and verse 32, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what the Lord was saying here was, it's not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They still exist. They're resurrected. In that sense, they're in heaven. They haven't come to the general resurrection yet. But they have been translated, if you like, from earth to heaven. He's still their God. The God of the patriarchs. And the same thought is to be found in the book of Acts. In chapter 3 and verse 13. Where the scripture records, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. So, here we have this description of the patriarchs and how that God is their God. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The first of these, Abraham, or Abram as it was first known, was in a number of respects the most eminent of all the patriarchs. He is the first one, of course, mentioned. But several times in Scripture we read about God as the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham. Only one man of all those whose lives are recorded in the Old Testament is given the high privilege of being referred to as the friend of God. That's an amazing thing. Abraham was called the friend of God. That is a beautiful description. And we would see that referred to in Second Chronicles 20 verse 7. Repeated again in Isaiah 41 verse 8 and in the, in the New Testament you'll see it in James chapter 2 verse 23 that he was called the friend of God you know the name of Abraham is revered to this very day among Jews and Arabs who refer to him as El Khalil the friend of God and of course Christians but not only is Abram called the friend of God, and that's something, incidentally, that's true of all believing Christians. Remember how Jesus said, ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. But a privilege. But Abram is also known in Scripture as the father of the faithful. That's a description you will read about in Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Now, there have been many throughout history who have claimed that they were the children of Abraham. Abraham is their father. For example, referring again to the Jews and Muslims, they both claim to be in the succession of this man. They both claim to be the children of Abraham. And in a sense, they're right. When you go back to the origins, Isaac and Ishmael. But Abraham was referred to as their father by those who often came against the Lord Jesus Christ they used this as some kind of a badge of honour we be the children of Abraham we're not born of fornication the implication being that Jesus was that's what they were saying there by implication we know your story you were born of fornication because they believed the lie which the devil, by the way, still perpetuates to this day, that he was not born of a virgin. Well, that is a lie. He was born of a virgin. Pure virgin. But those who came against the Lord Jesus Christ thought they would just use that as a battering ram against the Lord or a stick to beat him with. We're the children of Abraham. That was their boast. Paul even referred to this in Romans chapter 9, when he said in verses 7 and 8 neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children but in Isaac shall thy seed be called that is they which are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted for the seed so he's telling them just because you were born of the line of Abraham doesn't mean that you're the children of God but they thought That gave them a leg up, as it were, spiritually. We have Abraham to our father. But you'll notice that the scripture teaches that those who have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour are the true spiritual children of Abraham. He's the father of all the faithful. And so believing Christians, even today in 2022, have the right to speak of Abraham as our father Abraham he's our father Abraham now the life of Abram is fascinating as you study his life I believe that the Lord would have lessons for you to learn for your own life things that are of great benefit and blessing for you to learn if you're truly the Lord's from that which took place in his experience We already referred in a former message to the fact that Abram was justified by faith. That's something that's spoken of first in Genesis 15, verse 6, but it's repeated in Romans chapter 4. It's repeated in Galatians chapter 3. Abram was justified by faith. How are we saved? Romans 5.1 Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're declared free from sin and perfectly righteous in God's sight. Justified the same way that Abraham was. By simple faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now he was justified by faith as all believers are. But it's also true as we mentioned last Lord's Day that Abraham walked by faith. We talked last time about living by faith. And that's what Christians are called to do. They're called to walk not by sight, but by faith. The problem is that you and I walk by sight, don't we, very often? We make our judgments based upon the things that we see. And we decide that certain things are true because of what we see and what we experience. Instead of realizing that by faith, by faith, the believer is to walk in this world, Trusting every day in the Lord and in his wise providence. Abram not only was justified by faith and walked by faith, but he also triumphed by faith as all the children of God will in the end. Now we're talking about Genesis as the book of beginnings and it is the beginning of Abram's life. And it would be something that would take a long time for us to do if we were to study everything in the Bible concerning Abram. But let me just give you a list of the places where Abram is spoken about in the Bible. Some of the places where he's mentioned. Not only in Genesis, obviously, but in First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 27. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. In Psalm one hundred five, verse six; in Isaiah twenty nine, verse twenty two; in Isaiah forty one, eight; Isaiah fifty one, verses one and two; and when you come to the New Testament, he's mentioned in Matthew one, verse one; in John eight, verse fifty eight; in Acts seven. Verse one, and the verses thereafter, in the entire chapter of Romans chapter four, in Galatians chapter three, in Hebrews 2:16, in Hebrews chapter seven, and in Hebrews chapter 11, in quite a number of the verses. There's a lot in the Bible about Abraham. You learn about Abraham's faith in the Bible. You also learn about the foundation of his faith, what his faith was founded upon. You also learn about the fidelity that he showed to the Lord because of his faith. Now I made the point, uh, just to put that little caveat in there, that there were aberrations in Abram's life. And we'll see that. There were those times when he didn't do the right thing. There were those times when he did walk by sight rather than by faith. In the matter of his wife, Sarah, he used human judgment, human wisdom, human reasoning, when he tried to bluff others that she was not really his wife, but his sister. That was a half-truth. She was his half-sister, but she was his wife. He tried to hide that fact, because he was afraid in his human reasoning that some would think she's a very good-looking lady. We want to get rid of him, that we might have her. That's what he thought. He wasn't walking by faith. And there were other instances where Abram didn't walk by faith. Such as when he fathered a child with Hagar instead of waiting for God's promise through Isaac. He didn't always walk by faith. But if you're going to look at the whole of the life of Abram and sum it up, you're going to have to say, as the Bible does, that he was a man who lived by faith. That's how Hebrews 11 describes him. One who by faith did this and did that and did the other thing. He is rightly called the father of the faithful, or if you like, all those who possess true saving faith and all who live by faith. Abraham is their father. But there are two things in particular about Abraham that I want us to consider today as we think of him as the friend of God. First of all, let's notice the powerful testimony of the Lord's sovereignty in Abraham's life. The powerful testimony of the Lord's sovereignty in Abraham's life. When you look at Abraham, you see a character in whom by the grace of God there is much to admire. We don't admire any man because of who he is in himself. But we can admire the grace of God in him. And that's certainly true of Abraham. Abraham. When we come to the New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul confessed, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And every Christian has to say the same thing. I am nothing but by the grace of God. By the grace of God I am what I am. Paul, you're a mighty man. You're a mighty man of prayer. You're a mighty preacher. You're a mighty missionary, a mighty evangelist. Yes, but by the grace of God I am what I am. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. By the grace of God, Abraham was what he was. We see certain characteristics in this man's life, but in saying these positive things, we admire the grace of God in him, because God's grace made Abram what he was. Now, look at these. Biblical descriptions of him. He's the friend of God. He's the father of the faithful. But you also discover that God describes him at times as Abraham, my servant. And what I want to mention about Abraham, that's part of this powerful testimony of the Lord's sovereignty in him, is that he was a redeemed man. God saved him by grace. And friends, that's how everyone who is saved, is saved. By grace alone. Saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for sinful men and Jesus died for me. It is the grace of God that has redeemed us. Abram was a man for whom Christ died and shed his blood. Oh yes, it happened later on in history. It happened thousands of years later. But nonetheless, he was one for whom the Savior shed his blood. And as we noted, he is of course mentioned in the roll call of faith, in that great art gallery of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abraham. And yet the beginning of his history illustrates to us the sovereign grace of God That was manifested to him. Because Abram's beginning, his history, is to be traced to the house of idols in Babylon. Go back to Genesis chapter 11. We see that the narrative begins here. In a place that's called in chapter 11 verse 28, Ur of the Chaldees. Ur of the Chaldees. That's a place that is also known as Mesopotamia in the Bible. It was on the other side of the river Euphrates. And as you read your Old Testament, you come to the book of Joshua, and you have the history there of the Lord's people coming to possess the land. In that latter part of Joshua, in chapter 24, There's a reference to Joshua, who was the successor of Moses, gathering all the tribes of Israel to a place called Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And notice, Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood flood, in old time, he's referring to the river Euphrates. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, we meet him in Genesis chapter 11, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then you come to verse 3. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now think about this. Abraham came from a house of idolatry. He's included in that group of people of whom it says, and they served other gods. Abraham was an idolater. And that is further mentioned, by the way, in the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where he says in verse 2, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken... The God of, glo- of glory, the God of glory, appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, "Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee." The God of glory appeared unto Abraham, to an idolater. Abraham wasn't seeking after the Lord. Abraham wasn't interested in the God of Israel. He wasn't interested in in the true and living God. Abraham was an idolater. He was a lost sinner in darkness. He didn't know God. But the God of glory appeared unto him. Friends, that's sovereign grace. That's distinguishing grace. And that is what the Lord does in every age. When He speaks to the hearts of people and awakens them to their need, the God of glory appears to them. Not in any visible form. But He comes to them in the Scriptures. He comes to them in the Gospel. He opens their heart to the truth. He brings them to repentance and faith. So that they can say, like the Ephesians that there was a time when they were without Christ, and without God, without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Abram was a man who was redeemed. And by the way, in Ephesians chapter 2, it's quite clear in the context of those verses where it speaks of the grace of God, that Jew and Gentile are bought by the same blood of Christ. They are made one in Him. There's not a salvation for the Jews and a different kind of salvation for the Gentiles. This idea that one is an earthly people and the other is a heavenly people is a lot of nonsense. Spiritually, that is. God has one people in terms of Salvation. Yes, God has a purpose for national Israel. I don't deny it. But He doesn't have some sort of a separate plan for them that involves them living in some different place eternally from the Gentile believers. We're all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And so Abraham was a redeemed man the scripture reveals this to us, that he was chosen in grace. Called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Brought out of Mesopotamia. A place of great spiritual darkness. Why Abram? Why not somebody else? Because God had from the beginning chosen to redeem him. And so it is with all of God's elect people. What a wonderful scripture this is. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And verse 13, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel. Chosen in grace. Something else about Abraham, the redeemed man, he was called by grace. He was called by God. The Lord appeared to him and the Lord spoke to him. And Genesis 12 is speaking here in the past tense. Now the Lord had, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. This is something that he's speaking about that's happened previously. The Lord spoke to him. He was called out by God. Come out of Ur of the Chaldees. Leave your father's house. And as the Lord led him along, he taught him many different things. And while it is true, no doubt, that there may be many things that Abraham was not clear upon, living as he did in the Old Testament, the Gospel plan wasn't one of them. And that's very clear from the words of Christ and also the words of the Apostle Paul. Beginning with Paul's words in Galatians 3 verse 8. Galatians 3 verse 8 says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abram, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Or Abraham the man of faith. The Lord preached the gospel to him. And our Lord Jesus Christ referring to that in John chapter number 8 said in verse 56 Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And I've pointed out before that the Greek word that underlines that word in the English rejoiced signifies to jump for joy. That's how happy he was. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see Christ's day? Because the Lord showed him gospel truth. When you read Hebrews 11, you'll find that taking Isaac off the altar and offering up the ram in his stead, that Abraham received Isaac again as if he was raised from the dead in a figure. Speaks of resurrection there. Abraham believed in the resurrection. He believed that God was able to raise Isaac up. And he received him that way in a figure or a type. Because he was on the altar. He was about to be killed. But then he was taken off the altar. And in a sense that was a picture to Abraham of what would happen with Christ. Christ on the altar. Christ slain. And Christ raised you, know, you think about the doctrines that were revealed to Abraham. Abraham believed in heaven. You know, there are people today who don't believe in heaven. I feel sorry for them. I'm here to tell you, every believer is going to heaven. That's what the scripture teaches. We're going to heaven. It's a real place. It's God's home. And it's referred to in the Bible as heaven above, or the third heaven. Paul was caught up into the third heaven and saw wonderful things. And in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find that in verse 10, Abram believed in heaven, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He believed in the resurrection, as we've indicated in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. But he also believed in atonement. He believed in the atonement by blood. If we had time to study it today, we would see in chapter 12 of Genesis, and verses that we read together, in verse 7, that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. What's the altar for? It's for sacrifice. It's for the shedding of blood. And the Bible tells us in the next verse, Genesis 12, verse 8, there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord so he believed in prayer on the basis of the blood. Oh, Abraham believed some wonderful truths. And in chapter 22, again, that's made clear in the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham even believed in tithing. He did. In Hebrews chapter 7, it speaks about that. Hebrews 7 from verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted from them, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So there's a lot of things that Abraham believed as a redeemed man. And obviously when we refer to his salvation, we have to talk about him as a righteous man. He was an idolater. He wasn't righteous in himself. He was a sinner. He was a worshipper of idols. But the Lord accounted him righteous. Compare Genesis 15 verse 6 with James 2 verse 23. And then you go to Romans chapter 4 and you'll see that it's made abundantly clear there by the Apostle That Abraham was justified by faith. Righteousness was imputed to him. Here's what he says. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. He would be able to boast if he was saved by works. But he says not before God. No. For what saith the Scripture, Romans four verse three, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted it was counted unto him for righteousness. That word "counted" is a word that is alternately translated imputed, or reckoned, or accounted. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned? There's that word. It's alternately rendered here reckoned, but it's counted or Imputed of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. What he's saying here is it's not by your works that you're saved, it's by Christ's work that you're saved, and your believing in that is what brings that to your soul. That's how you're saved. Saved by grace through faith alone. Upon the merits of the Redeemer, Abraham was declared perfectly righteous in the sight of a holy God. Justification is a blessed doctrine. It's a wonderful truth. Our Shorter Catechism, answer 23, gives one of the greatest definitions I've ever heard of justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in His sight, Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And you can't speak of this great truth in scripture of justification without reference to Abraham. Righteousness was imputed to him. Even though in common with all other men, Abraham by nature was not righteous. You're not righteous and neither am I. We're guilty, we're ill deserving, we're hell deserving... But yet God in grace saves us as by faith we look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is imputed to us. It is reckoned. It is credited to our account. So that we stand before God as righteous as Christ is. And that's a truth I can never get over. And neither should you if you're a believer him rather said oh make me understand it help me to take it in what it meant to thee the Holy One to bear away my sin you could also say make me understand it help me to take it in how I a guilty sinner could be accounted righteous in the sight of God as righteous before God as Christ is but that's what the Savior said in his prayer in John 17 that's what he said that every one of them that were chosen in him, were, as far as God is concerned, as he was. Thou hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Righteous in Christ. Abraham, of course, was a representative man. We see this from the teaching in Romans 4, and in Galatians chapter 3. In Abraham, we Have a picture of God's dealings with all of His people. You know what it says of Abraham there is true of all Christians. That's why it says he's the father of the faithful. And so in his life, you could say we have a typical representation of the lives of all men and women of faith. The things that happened to Abraham, generally speaking, are things that happen to us. You look at Abraham's life and God's dealings with that man. They foreshadow, do they not, his dealings with us as believers in Christ. We can see ourselves in him. Think about God calling him. We've already mentioned the great sovereignty of this. This is how God calls us. Why did God save Abram? Because he chose to. Why did God save you? Because he chose to. There's nothing in you or in me that makes us to differ from somebody else not because you're born in a certain place to a certain family or that you weren't born to a certain family or you have a certain pedigree or you don't have a certain pedigree. It's nothing to do with any of that. The sovereignty of God is the sole reason for our salvation. We're saved because He chose to save us. And the trial and the testing of Abraham's faith, and even the failures that we've already mentioned that he showed as a believer, they are reminiscent, are they not, of the believer's experiences? Who among us has not failed? Who among us has not done or said or thought things that were wrong, even since the day we were saved? Do we not have to confess that we fail the Lord on a daily basis? All the time. Isn't that what James said? In many things, we offend all. All of us are guilty. We don't want to sin, but we do sin. We want to live for the Lord better than we do, but we don't. And we lack in certain areas. And as we've been learning in some messages we've been listening to recently, we struggle. We struggle. But that's the great thing about a believer. And that's one of the marks of a believer. He does struggle. Wouldn't it be far worse if we didn't struggle? Give in to sin at every turn with abandon. Don't care what God thinks. Don't care what His Word says. Just live for the devil. No, that's not what the believer does. The believer, like Abram, might fail betimes. But the general tenor of his life is that he has faith and trust in God. Arthur Pink has a very good commentary on Genesis. I I qualify that, of course, by saying that it's full of dispensational rubbish, which Pink later came to abandon. But the typology and some of the teaching in there is absolutely wonderful. Tremendous study in Genesis. And Pink, in his commentary, said... To read most profitably the record of Abraham's life, we must see in it a portrayal of our own spiritual history. Isn't that good? So think about that. Every time you're reading your Bible and you're reading about the life of Abraham, such as right now, think of those words. To read most profitably the record of his life, you must see in it a portrayal of your own spiritual history. So we could say of Abraham and our own selves, like father, like son, because he is the father of the faithful. Galatians 3.29 says that we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we're his children. So as we study his life, let's not merely see it, and this is true of many of the men of God in the Bible, let's not just see it as a piece of inspired history or, or some sort of an obsolete narrative Of something that took place in the distant past. But let's see it as a portrayal of all of God's dealings with every one of Abraham's children in every age, including our own. It is, Abraham's life, a great testimony. It's a powerful testimony of the Lord's sovereignty. But the second thing I want to mention is this. The particular themes in the life story of Abraham... Are really important for us to note. There are particular themes in the life story of this man. And there's an awful lot we could say. Concerning the message of Abraham's life. What is Abraham's life telling us? There are many lessons. There There are varied lessons to be gleaned from the biblical narrative. But I do think that if you were going to sum up the life of Abraham. There are three Themes really that that dominate his life and they're very simple to remember there's the theme of salvation there's the theme of separation and there's the theme of service three things that we should remember salvation and without going back over all that I just said about justification this is undoubtedly abundantly illustrated in this man's life story God's salvation. His story is, above all other things, one of saving grace to an undeserving lost sinner. An idolater. Now some of us might look at that and think, well, I was never an idolater. I never worshipped statues or idols or false gods. But you did have idols that you worshipped. As Ezekiel talk about the idols that they have set up in their hearts. There was a time when God was not on the throne of your heart. It was sin. It was self. It was the things that you wanted to do. The pleasures of this life and of this world. Those were your gods. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It means no other gods before my face. I'm not going to put up with any other gods. The problem is that men and women do have other gods that they put in God's place. One of them is self. And their own desires and their own pleasures. And what pleases them. People have all sorts of gods that they worship. Things that may in themselves be relatively harmless nothing wrong with getting involved in sports for example you may be involved in athletic competition or whatever but some of these things become gods that's why you have on a Sunday morning instead of being in church people playing games playing sports watching sports what they love most is their god it's such a sad thing today never used to happen when I was a kid but now everywhere, including in my own country, Sunday is the day for soccer moms and their children. And there they are, right, playing games. Used to be they were in Sunday school. Not anymore. It's hard to get kids into Sunday schools. When I was the minister in Mount Marion Church, 35, 40, almost 40 years ago, We had over 100 children on our Sunday school. The average attendance in the congregation was about 45 to 50 people. We had 100 plus, sometimes 110 children in the Sunday school. Where did they come from? They came from the neighbourhood around and about. Most of them. I would say at least three quarters, maybe more than that, of the children that came to our Sunday school were from the neighbourhood. You see today... To try to do that same thing in this day and age. There's no way that you would get that many children for Sunday school on a Sunday afternoon. Because they're too busy doing other things. Their parents have them involved in sports. They have them involved in this, that or the other thing. Or they're off shopping with their parents. Or whatever it may be. There are things that are gods that people worship. I've just given one example But the God of sports is certainly a big one, isn't it? Every final is on the Lord's Day. Do you ever notice that? Every major final. I don't care whether it's Super Bowl, baseball, basketball. It doesn't matter what it is. It usually ends up being Game 7 is on Sunday. That's how the world has it arranged. That's their God. That's what they worship. That's the thing that's most important to them. And you can put something else in the blank if it's something else. Not everybody's into sports, but some people are into some other things. Hobbies of certain kinds. Anything that takes the place of the Lord. Anything you love more than God is your God. That's it. You love something more than God. It could be a loved one. That's your God. Abraham. However, was a man who God called out of idolatry, and you find him in a place where he's worshiping the Lord. The practice of Abraham is to be at the altar. We haven't time to look at these references, but Genesis 12, verse 13, or sorry, Genesis 12, verse 7, Genesis 13, verse 4, chapter 15, chapter 22. Abraham is at the altar. He's worshiping. The Lord. He believed in the shedding of the blood for the remission of sins. And the altar was a feature of his life. And by the way, it was also a feature of Isaac's life. And of the a feature of Jacob's life. Three things they had in their lives that were prominent. The altar, the tent and the well. And all three of those have spiritual importance and significance. But again, as well as the practice of Abraham... We see the promise to Abraham that's mentioned several times in Scripture. We don't want to go over the old ground again, though it's profitable for us to do so. But there was a promise to Abraham of the seed, and it was concerning Christ. Galatians 3.16 That's what the promise was all about. It wasn't just about Isaac. Ultimately, it was about the Messiah. Christ would come of Abraham's seed according to the flesh. So Isaac had to come, yes. But then Christ would come to save his people from their sins including Abraham himself Abraham has in his life a particular theme that is emphasized it is salvation but also separation that's a prominent theme isn't it right from the beginning we see it the Lord had said Genesis 12 verse 1 get thee out don't stay in Get thee out. Leave. Leave your father's house. That's separation. And Hebrews 11 speaks of that. That he was called to go out. And when he was called to go out, he obeyed, not knowing whether he went. And Abraham really illustrates for us the heavenly calling of all those that are in Christ. We're to be like him. We're to live as strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Now, the Lord doesn't want you to go buy a fancy tent and move your tent all around, literally speaking. We have to be very careful when reading the Scriptures, that we don't read into it something that's not there. Some people might think, well, there's a place in the Bible, where the Lord told this man to give away everything that he had, give away all his money, and go and just live without any money. And so I'll do the same thing. The Lord hasn't called you to do that. What the Lord has called you to do, however, is to live loosely by the things of the world. What the Lord has called you to do is to live in a tent spiritually in this sense. People who lived in tents, just like today, Bedouin Arabs in the Sahara Desert. They're always on the move, aren't they? They're always on the move from place to place. They'll find an oasis and then they move from that oasis where there's water to some other place where there's water. But they're always on the move, pitching their tent lifting their tent pegs, moving to another place. That's how we're to live in this world. As if we're in a tent. We're not staying here. We're not remaining here. We're on the move. Pilgrims and strangers on the earth. That's what believers are called to be. And the separation that Abraham was called to involved, you will note, right at the start, The breaking of even fleshly and family ties. Now he wasn't altogether obedient at the start. You'll notice that. Because the Lord didn't say, I want you to bring with you Lot. And I want you to bring Terah and so on with you. No, that shouldn't have happened. The latter part of Genesis 11 shows us the delay that there was in Abraham's obedience by the way, that word that's there means delay, interestingly. He was brought to a place of delay. And then in chapter 12 we read, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. There is separation even from his loved ones. Sometimes... The Lord calls us to a separation that involves the breaking of fleshly and even family ties. And it may produce conflict. You see, there the verse tells us in chapter 12, that's verse 6, and the Canaanite was then in the land. Who who was the Canaanite? Well, they were the enemies, they were the idolaters, they were the haters of God. The Canaanite was then in the land. God's call to separation is a necessary condition of blessing. And friends, it was a keynote in Abraham's life. Because in that separation unto the will of God, Abraham found all his peace and blessing, and so will you. You know, the place of blessing is the place of separation. Outside the camp with thee. And there's one final thought, and it is this. The particular themes in the life story of Abraham include not only salvation and separation, but of course service, faithful service. The life of Abraham was one of constant service to his Lord. And as you study the biography, you'll find two things about that service of his. There was an obedience in his walk, where he was going in God's way, It's emphasized there in Hebrews 11. He was called to go to a place which he should after receive for an inheritance. The Lord did not show it to Abraham right away. Some people think that when the Lord calls you to do something, you have to know exactly what it's all going to look like in ten years time. But that's not how the Lord works. The Lord calls us to do His will today. And tomorrow He'll reveal to us what it is we're to do then. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. A lot of times we want to live our lives in advance. Now of course there's a a sense in which you should plan. There's a sense in which you should provide for the future. But not in any way that doesn't take account of the fact that the Lord may change your plans. There's to be an obedience in our walk. And as well as that there was an offering in worship by Abraham. That is illustrated in the fact that he was often seen... In prayer and at the altar seeking the Lord. Abraham was a man of prayer. I know that the Lord would make us to be men and women of prayer. Walking by faith. Living a life in communion with God. Abraham's service to the Lord and for the Lord is a great challenge to us. I remember as a young teenager being told by another believer, an older fellow, said, you know, the Lord has not called you to salvation just so that you might go to heaven. Because he said, if, if the only reason the Lord saved you was to take you to heaven, then he would have taken you to heaven the day you were saved. But he said, he's actually called you to serve. You're saved to serve. And I never forgot that. Saved to serve. We haven't just been called to go to heaven. Thank God that's where we're headed if we're the Lord's. But we're here to serve. We're here to do the Lord's business. In the window of a store somewhere in the UK, there was a sign prominently displayed in large capital letters. And it simply read, Business Below Dash Residence Above. What does that mean? Business below, residence above. Well, it's simply the owner's way of telling you the bottom part of this building is the store. That's the business. And we live upstairs. So if you want to get in touch with me, that's our residence above the shop. And by the way, that's a very common thing. It used to be a very common thing in the UK where someone uh, owned a little mom-and-pop place and they would live upstairs and the business would be down below. But I thought about that. Business below, residence above. Isn't that the believer? I'm here on business for my king. My business is here. And now, I'm here to work doing the Lord's business as long as I'm down here until I'm called to go higher to my residence above business below but with a mind to the residents above we're headed for heaven that's how we're to live Spurgeon has a tremendous reading in one of his devotionals that I was reading one day when my wife was very low in the hospital and she was very low she'll not mind me saying this if she's listening but that day she said to me I just want to die and go to heaven And Spurgeon's reading in the textbook of the Bank of Faith was along the lines of I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And in that devotional he said I am immortal till my work is done. See, we're here on business for the Lord. We have a work to do right here. And we're not going to that residence above until that work is done. So friends, let's get busy for the Lord. Until we're called to go higher to that city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the one that Abraham was looking to, let's in the meantime be living as strangers and pilgrims on the earth and serving him, making every moment count in the service of our God. May the Lord help us so to do. For his name's sake. Amen.